0: It's Monday.
1: It's July 9th. And the word of the day is locum. It means a person who stands in temporarily for someone else of the same profession. Used in a sentence, if you think your balls swing low enough to stand in for Heath Enright, you better have some really low cum.
2: I'm no illusions. I'm Eli Bosnick.
0: I'm Heath Enright. And broadcasting delayed from America's far center, we
1: are the Skeptocrats. On this week's episode... I'll take advantage of the formulaic nature of this intro to make it seem temporarily like Heath and Eli are on the episode, I'll have to come up with more bullet points than I'm normally responsible for, and Andrew Torres of the Opening Arguments podcast will be here to keep me from talking to myself for half an hour. But first, the diatribe. You know what I miss? Party bosses, smoke-filled rooms, and pork-barrel spending. I mean, say what you will about the party bigwigs subverting the will of the people, but they never would have given us Donald fucking Trump. The whole time that Democrats were freaking out about the possibility that superdelegates could steal the nomination, I was thinking, well, damn shame the Republicans don't have some of those rights. I mean, to whatever extent there was party leadership in the GOP during the nomination process, they were united against Trump, but they'd been castrated over the years by an electorate that was simultaneously becoming increasingly emboldened and decreasingly informed. The party bosses were taking shifts at the klaxon for months, but they had no negotiating tools. Nobody was in charge enough to whittle down the pool and unite the electorate behind a single challenger. Nobody could promise Kasich and Cruz this and threaten Rubio and Bush with that. So instead of a smoke-filled room, we just got a smoldering executive branch. See, here's the thing. Political commentators wring their hands a lot about the increasing power of, say, the executive, because let's face it, our system isn't designed to work when too much power is concentrated in one place. But that goes for all the players in the government, and that includes the people. And as controversial as that might be to say now, it wouldn't rankle any feathers at the Continental Congress. The founding fathers designed a system of checks and balances, and among the parties they put checks on were the people, and for good reason. I mean, present company excluded, of course, but the people is where we put all the fucking idiots. So we don't let them vote for federal judges, for example. We don't do a lot of stuff through public referendums. Originally, we didn't even vote for senators. And, of course, the much maligned Electoral College was originally justified as another barrier between a demagogue and the highest office. But over the years, we've worked to erode those checks. We seem to recognize and accept that all the various parties of governance need a check except us. And so the will of the people becomes sacrosanct even above the good of the nation. Hell, even now, the Electoral College is under fire for exactly that reason. It subverted the will of the people. But subverting the will of the people is kind of the point. The problem here is that they didn't subvert the will of the people enough A few faithless electors could have saved the day here. Of course, the voices calling for the abolition of the Electoral College are quick to justify their assertions by pointing out that we wouldn't have Trump or Bush the Younger if it weren't for that vestigial system. And if that's true, I'm with them. I just, you know, don't have access to the crystal ball they're using to see how those elections would have played out if we were using different rules and both teams knew about it. Seems to me that if we were doing popular vote, Putin's interventions would have been different and easier while we're on the subject, but I'm getting off topic and taking advantage of the fact that Heath isn't here to offer a counterpoint. The real point I'm trying to make here is the one that Heath so perfectly articulated on this show a few weeks back. People are perfectly willing to admit that they're not good at math or not very knowledgeable about geography or not super informed on physics, but nobody's willing to say, I'm not very good at politics. For some reason, everybody is dead fucking certain they're an expert on every issue they never heard of before yesterday. Our nation is suddenly awash in experts on immigration policy, trade disputes, nuclear non-proliferation, climatology, law enforcement, energy policy, the whole voluminous swath of disciplines that fall under the umbrella of economics. And many of them earn their expertise with no more effort than Googling until they found something that agreed with their gut instinct. And these are the people that we're entrusting with all the most important decisions in government. These are the people swinging elections and over ruling the consensus of the experts. I mean, we're all wringing our hands about how to counter Russian influence and tap down on social media disinformation and better vet our news sources, but all of those conversations are focused in the wrong direction. In my opinion, I mean, ultimately the problem isn't how to get fewer ads saying you can vote by text in front of people or how to reduce the sharing of phony news stories about one candidate being involved in a child prostitution ring. It's the fact that we've turned over the most powerful levers of government to the kind of people who would fall for vote-by-text ads and comment ping-pong conspiracy theories, isn't it? And don't get me wrong, I'm not against the will of the people. Some of my best friends are people. And most of the moves we've made in our history to expand the power of the electorate was by broadening the definition of the people to include the non-white and the non penist That's all great. I'm all for that. But this reverence we have for the will of the people has to be tempered by a reminder that more than a third of them don't know who delivered the Gettysburg Address, can't name the three branches of government, and don't know who the goddamn vice president is right now. 83% of them don't know who the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court is. And more than a quarter of those people believe that cell phones cause cancer, GMOs are unsafe, climate change is a hoax, people can be cured of their gayness, evolution is fake, and the Bible is the literal word of God. So whenever we talk about the will of the people, just keep in mind that those dumb fucks are also covered by Jefferson's comprehensive we.
2: Hey, welcome to typical suit buying experience. I look like I stole this off a dead body. Can I help you?
0: Yeah, uh, I I got a friend's wedding and uh, uh Well,
2: look no suit. further. Here mm-hmm. at Suit Storage Facility, we have a variety of suits that will fit you great. Oh, really? Nope. Nope, that's not oh. how big warehouses full of suits work. It's just
0: Right. Right. Uh is there any way I can make it fit?
2: Um I could sell you one that doesn't fit and then send you over to our creepy tailor guy. Inseem. Okay. Inseem.
0: Okay. He was right there. Um,
2: anything else? Oh, you well, you could, you could try Indochino. Oh, what's Indochino? Uh, Indochino's the world's largest made-to-measure menswear company. They make suits and shirts made to your exact measurements for a great fit. Wow, custom-tailored suit. That sounds pretty amazing. It is amazing. Visit a showroom or shop online at Indochito.com, pick your fabric, choose your customizations, submit your measurements, and wait for your custom suit to arrive in just a few weeks.
0: Wow. And uh, what do you guys do here at Suit Storage Place?
2: Oh, well, I'll I'll show you a suit that's technically your size, and then when you ask why parts of it don't fit, I'll act like suits are a rare Egyptian puzzle, and you just don't have the key. Oh. Well, that... Sounds terrible. It is. It is terrible and expensive. But this week, our listeners can get any premium Indochino suit for just $379 at Indochino.com when entering Skeptocrat at checkout. That's 50% off the regular price for a made-to-measure premium suit. Plus, shipping is free. Wow. That's, uh, That's way cheaper than anything here. I know, right? And it's custom-tailored. That's Indochino.com, I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code Skeptocrat for any premium suit for just $379 in free shipping. It's an incredible deal for a suit that will fit you better than anything off the rack ever could.
0: Okay, I am convinced. So uh, I'm going to walk around for a little because I feel awkward Mm -hmm. now, and then I'm going to leave without buying anything.
2: Cool. I'm gonna ask you if you need help every four seconds until you leave. Cool. You need help?
0: No. No, we I'm good. How about now? Nope.
1: Just talked about it. <laughs> At nine PM Eastern Time, Schmuckle Orange will decide which potential SCOTUS nominee to give the rose to in a ceremony designed to leach the last molecule of solemnity from the nation's highest court. So with the judiciary dominating the news cycle today and with Eli and Heath still out of town, I figured it'd be a perfect time to reach out to friend of the show and our resident legal expert, Andrew Torres of the Opening Arguments podcast. Andrew, thanks so much for joining me today.
3: Hey, well, thanks for having me, Noah. And thanks for that uh, somber and uh, solemn intro. I think that's going to it's going to prove prescient.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think we're going to have a bit of a theme like that, because, you know, obviously, we've got to talk about Trump's nominee and all the implications of that. But while I have you here, I'd also like to take a few minutes to discuss just how bad the court already is. The news of Anthony Kennedy's retirement hit with such a thunderclap that it kind of drowned out the media coverage we might normally have expected over some of these more controversial and impactful decisions at the at the end of this court session. So before we talk about the future, let's focus in a bit on the past. How did the court do overall, in your opinion, this time around?
3: Yeah, so here's the best way to think about where the court was before Anthony Kennedy's retirement, and then that will give us a pretty good picture of where it's going to be, which is lurching to the right. So, with Anthony Kennedy as the swing justice, right, uh, as the the median justice from one to nine, he was justice number five, this term there were 14 cases that split 5-4 on ideological, on partisan lines. And Kennedy voted with the court's right wing in all 14 of those cases. So, that was where your center of gravity already was with a mainstream conservative, right? Somebody who is by no means a moderate as the swing justice. Now, what, what made Kennedy the, quote, swing justice is that in the past, uh, he had been a reliable vote in LGBTQ issues. He joined with the court's majority in Obergefell versus Hodges, uh, the marriage equality decision, for example. But still, you know, and I this is something I, I use on Opening arguments. If you're grading partisanship on a scale of zero to 100, you know, with zero being extreme leftist and 100 being Antonin Scalia, Neil Gorsuch, uh, Kennedy is in the high 70s, right? He's a 75, 77, 78, right? He was not a 50. He was not a 60. He was a mainstream conservative. With his retirement, the median justice will now be Chief Justice John Roberts. and. he's probably a a 93 right yeah. like uh, you know it, it's he's not he's not a gorsuch but but yes it, so so the court in in the short term you know what you can expect is for the supreme court to look and produce decisions that look like the batch of decisions that it produced in this spring term, <laughs> and uh, and they're bad. And I get the sense we're <laughs> we're going to talk about some of them. But uh, but there is uh, there there nothing that I would consider. Uh, you know, if you're uh, politically left of center, if you're looking for the way in which jurisprudence develops in this country, like th- this th- these are bad. <laughs>
1: All right. So let's let's start talking about a few of them specifically. And I kind of want to start at the end here because uh, Kennedy announced his retirement like immediately after the decision came down in the Janus case. Uh, Mm -hmm. So there wasn't a whole hell of a lot of media coverage of
3: that. Can can you kind of give us the background on that one? Sure. And this has a little bit of complexity to it. But what you need to know is that public sector unions, right, like teachers unions, they have a legal obligation to represent all of the relevant employees when they engage in collective bargaining. Right. So, in other words, the union can't go to the state government and say, we only want a five percent raise for unionized teachers. Right. Like they they have to bargain for terms and conditions that apply to all teachers and all of the teachers have the opportunity to determine whether they want to join the union or not, right? So you can say, yeah, I'm a conservative teacher. I don't like the union's political stance, so I want to opt out of being a dues-paying member of the union because I know that some of those dues go to political activities. And for a very long time, that's been the law. But backstrapping that is that for the union's non-ideological activities, right, for their non-partisan, non-political duties, they've been able to, the union in 22 states and the District of Columbia, have been able to charge those administrative costs out to the entire workforce, right? And that makes sense. That's the their bargaining on behalf of the entire relevant workforce, and so they should be able to pass those costs on for non-ideological dues uh, to every employee. In 28 states, they passed a law, right? That they're called right-to-work laws that say, "No, no, you can't." Um, and that's, you know, that's a, a Orwell, you know, an Orwellism. Yeah, uh, I just moved
1: to one of those right-to-work states, and uh, yeah, good good luck finding it.
3: Right. So, you know, in a right-to-work state what that creates is the massive incentive for a free rider problem right mm. it it says you can now benefit from the collective bargaining on behalf of the union but you don't have to pay anything to support the union so what makes this such an uh, an important decision about the future of of the court is that this was a settled question Okay. In 1977, there was a case called Abood versus the Detroit Board of Education. Exact same issue. Public sector unions imposing administrative costs on non members and members alike in the covered workforce. And in 1977, 41 years ago, the Supreme Court said, yeah, that's perfectly fine. That is constitutional. That was a 6 3 decision. So after that decision, that's when states started passing right to work laws. And What happened was a couple of years ago, the right wing, you know, having been disappointed at the fact that they were not successful in passing laws in all 50 states, they only got them in in 28 states, decided to sue again, right? Same facts, same question, and the thought process was, hey, you know, the Supreme Court seems a lot more conservative than it was in 1977. I bet we can get them to gut public sector unions for us. And they were right. The court ruled 5-4 that paying administrative, non-ideological dues violates the First Amendment by, quote, compelling individuals to mouth support for views they find objectionable.
1: Well, okay, so are these people objecting to higher wages or retirement? Like, what— <laughs>
3: Yeah, it, the, that's literally the argument. The argument is that even though these were not the political lobbying costs that whenever a union is lobbying the government that its lobbying takes on an inherently political character, right? For oh. higher minimum wages and and, and, oh, okay. and so yeah, and 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 again, if you were deciding this case in a vacuum, maybe we could debate the merits of the compelled speech argument. I still think that's a terrible argument, uh, but whatever. But we're not debating it in a vacuum. We're debating it in 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 the history of the Supreme Court having previously considered this and said that that was constitutional. And I I, I, I just want to emphasize. I mean, I, I get you know I'm the I'm the law geek here on the show, but it is incredibly rare, or at least up until now, it has been incredibly rare for the Supreme Court to directly overrule prior precedent, right? Right. There are a couple of landmark cases like that that we know about, and they're called landmark cases because of how rare it is, right? Those are the exceptions. Right. Those are th- those are the most extreme of circumstances. Otherwise, the rule is starry decisis. Right. That is you follow existing precedent and you're supposed to do it for cases you like and cases you don't.
1: Well, but so all stories burn out of it. It's like heat death for starry decisis. I get it. Each <laughs> decise blinks out one by one and then we're left in a cold universe where there is no time.
3: Yeah. And and not only are we going to be left with a universe where, you know, the, the only heat is from what, what proton decay at that point, but what's coming down the pike is Obergefell versus Hodges, the mm-hmm. marriage equality decision, is three years old. So if, if this court can throw away a 40-year-old case like Abood, it can throw away a three-year-old case and like Obergefell. How old is Roe v. Wade? Yeah, nineteen seventy-three. So yeah. Maybe forty is the cutoff of forty one. (laughs) Yeah. Right. It's now part of a protected class. No, Mm. I but 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 look, like that was when a conservative court reconsidered Roe in nineteen ninety, right? That was the Planned Parenthood versus Casey decision. And the central holding of Planned Parenthood versus Casey was we are going to reaffirm Roe because of the starry principle of starry decisis. And Roe was only twenty years old at that point, right? Eighteen at the at the time that they were right. considering it, and uh, to have a court that just says, and th- the language is really, really troubling. Uh, yeah, no, that Janus reached the wrong result, and uh, so we're overruling it. That's uh, you know why I have consistently on on opening arguments I have said we have a a right wing activist Supreme Court, and you know that was the strongest signal that. You know, the, the court lined up in a way to say, well, eh, no, it, it, we do not care to be constrained by a decision from 40 years ago. Wow all right. right so i i think all of these are going to end
1: depressing and also i should mention that like it, we're only going to be able to hit the surface of all of these decisions if you want to know more you can check out opening arguments i believe each one of these has virtually a whole episode dedicated to it we'll have a bunch of links in the show notes for that uh that being said let's move on to a, a case that has a lot of relevance for our listeners we already discussed this at length over on scathing atheists but i see a lot of people who are still super confused about what it means uh, can you give us the broad strokes of the masterpiece cake shop decision
3: Yeah. So here again, it's helpful to know what the background law is, right? So in 1990, this was one of the very first decisions that Antonin Scalia authored. It was a case called Employment Division versus Smith. And it was about two gentlemen who were practitioners of Native American spiritualism and central to that religious practice, something that is not in dispute, right? It's a a, uh, sincerely held religious belief that Concerns the ingestion of peyote. This is a subject upon which I'm a precious little cinnamon bun, as, <laughs> as you have dubbed me. But my understanding is that, you know, that is the the, the experiences that one has while on peyote uh, are then interpreted in a religious view by this particular sect of of. Native Americans. Yeah, spirit, I mean, spirit. the
1: kind of stuff that happens on peyote, that's interpreted in a religious sense by atheists. So yeah,
3: I get <laughs> okay. it. I get it. So ingesting peyote was against the law in New Mexico. And these gentlemen wanted an exemption to that law to allow them to continue to do so in order to practice their religion. And the court said no. And again, you let me say, I think we could argue this case either way, right? Like that, whether we want to craft religious exceptions to laws of general applicability or not. But the court said no and, and did so in the strongest possible terms because, of course, they did because it was a Scalia opinion, right? So he, here's what Scalia said in 1990 about laws and religious freedom generally. He said, quote, laws are made for the government of actions. And while they cannot interfere with mere religious belief and opinions, they may with practices. Can a man excuse his practices to the contrary because of his religious belief? To permit this would be to make the professed doctrines of religious belief superior to the law of the land and, in effect, to permit every citizen to become a law unto himself, end of quote, right? So that seems really, really clear, right? If a law is neutral, then you have to obey it, even if it offends your religious sensibilities. So that's the background. Now, enter Colorado. They passed a law of neutral applicability that requires all businesses that serve the public do so in a non-discriminatory fashion towards, among other people, LGBTQ individuals. And so even if you belong to a religion that encourages you to be a bigot. Well, I, you can just say religion here. You're among friends.
1: Yeah.
3: <laughs> and 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 of course, we got a religious bigot, right? We got a guy who owned a cake shop who didn't think he should have to sell wedding cakes to same-sex couples. That clearly violates the Colorado law. And so he sued, lost, lost again, then got to the Supreme Court where this part of the claim is very clearly governed by Employment Division versus Smith, right? And somehow he won. And I have been wrapping my head around. I did a full-length episode on opening arguments with Andrew Seidel from the Freedom from Religion Foundation. I did a lengthy bit on Scathing Atheist with you guys. I I am trying to figure out how this opinion can be justified in any kind of of legal regime and i can't come up with one uh, the only thing i can come up with is that the right wing of the court wanted to craft an exception to smith for christians right so here's so here's what the ruling did right the ruling said that the Uh, Hate Baker, in this case, was not treated with the, quote, neutral and respectful consideration of his beliefs. End of quote. And and again, I I just want to be clear, right, because that doesn't sound so bad on its face. Right. Yeah. We want, you know, everybody to be treated neutrally. We want everybody to treated to be treated respectfully. But the plaintiffs in Smith weren't entitled to neutral and respectful consideration of their beliefs. Right. The only question was, is the law neutral? The law itself. Right, not how, was how did the law interface with their belief? The question was, what does the law do, and is it targeting you because of your religion? And if it's not, then you just lose. You you, you know, suck it up. You gotta you gotta follow the law, and keep in mind, right? There have been prior cases immediately before Smith. Uh, you know, the, there were cases like. The Jehovah's Witnesses suing, claiming that paying taxes forced them to subsidize beliefs to it. You know, right? And the court right, was like, the, get the get Mormons
1: any. sued once to try to get polygamy legalized for their religion, and the Supreme Court found the same
3: exact thing. You know, exactly right. Like that's I, I, again, I I hate to say when Scalia is right, but you know, it, it is it is the epitome of an actual slippery slope to have a system that says when a neutral law interferes with your religious beliefs, you don't have to follow it or you're entitled to some sort of exception. Okay, so so that was the rule. Uh, And then Masterpiece Cake Shop said, nope, you now get this kind of amorphous, neutral and respectful consideration. And if that's not there, then we can reconsider the entire law. And again, I want to I want to emphasize, despite the fact that this case was being was being uh, characterized as a narrow ruling, right, and the reason it was being characterized that way is because the that neutral and respectful consideration is a procedural argument right, and they didn 't take up the merits of the argument that that I was concerned about, which is the compelled speech portion of the argument, so people were saying, "Hey, look, this is narrow it 's not going to you know have a, it just only applies to this one Baker in Colorado because there was this weird quirk at the hearing below." Um, Two days after Masterpiece Cake Shop came out, the Supreme Court reversed the state Supreme Court of Washington in the Arlene's Flowers case and remanded it back to the lower courts in light of Masterpiece Cake Shop. That is with a directive to ensure that the Christian bigot there and here she's a florist and not a cake baker, but it's the same thing, was treated with neutral and respectful consideration of her bigoted beliefs.
1: Okay, so it just gets worse. Um, So we got one decision in favor of broad new interpretations of religious freedom. Let's balance that one with another ruling that shits all over that concept. (laughs) Uh, Can you tell us about the travel ban ruling?
3: Yeah, and this is you are absolutely correct. This is the flip side of the Masterpiece Cake Shop ruling, because here what we have is the executive order that is euphemistically called the travel ban, that executive order is definitely permissible under the law. In fact, it was one of the very first episodes of opening arguments that we did. It was way back in episode 16 in which I said uh, when Donald Trump was a candidate for president and not somebody I thought was going to be the president. And I said, hey, look, like lots of liberal scholars are out here trying to argue that uh, if he gets to be president, he can't do this. And they're wrong because he can. uh, It's very clearly authorized by the law. But a funny thing happened on the way to the Supreme Court, which is that alongside the clear executive authority to issue that order was a ton of evidence in the record from Donald Trump himself that this was intended to discriminate against Muslims, right? From the very beginning, right? We need to have a ban that keeps all the Muslims out. And the the lower cases are rife. It's it's the, the first time in history that, that I've ever seen this were rife with quotations from the president from his twitter page from debates right that said hey look ordinarily the president has the authority to issue a directive like this but we have unimpeachable evidence that the president intended to discriminate against a religious class of individuals and that makes this action impermissible under the first amendment which is pretty good pretty good argument and so When Masterpiece Cake Shop came down, some commentators, including some that came on my show, were thinking, hey, well, look, maybe the good side of Masterpiece is that if we're having this larger application of religious neutrality, maybe that's going to be used to strike down the travel ban. And uh, that as with all optimism in the age of Trump, has turned out to be misplaced optimism. The Trump versus Hawaii decision is written as if Donald Trump had never said anything on the subject, right? It just says that he's got the statutory authority and courts defer to the president in matters concerning immigration policy. Those are all true things. Uh, The majority opinion does not even cite to Masterpiece Cake Shop. The, the dissents do right? so do <laughs> so, so my horse dissent all over the place points out the inherent contradiction. If there's a new rule to be articulated here, it certainly was not applied to the president of the United States.
1: Yeah, I, I noticed a, a distinct lack of neutrality and respect. All right. Well, obviously, we've still got a lot more to depress you about. But before we get to do that, we're going to take a quick break for a word from this week's second sponsor, Lightstream. Um, hello? Hello?
4: Welcome to typical credit consolidation experience, human 453321. I am Detotron. Fill in these forms now.
1: Uh, yeah. I was just looking to save some money and lower the interest on my credit card debt. Form. So, uh, fill in
4: form. Then other form. Detotron needs forms. Okay,
1: is there is there somewhere a little more human that i could do this
4: well you could try lightstream.com
1: okay what's what's lightstream.com
4: lightstream rewards consumers who have good credit with a great interest rate and no fees get a credit card consolidation loan from 5.89 apr with auto pay loans from five thousand to one hundred thousand dollars
1: okay that's great and you uh
4: i will crush you under the sheer weight of my forms
1: Yeah, that doesn't sound uh, great.
4: It's not great, but credit card debt feels like being in trouble in middle school, so we're hoping you'll just go with the first Google result out of fear.
1: Right. Okay, so about this Lightstream thing. Well, skeptocrat listeners get an additional interest rate discount on top of
4: Lightstream's already low rates. The only way to get this discount is to go to lightstream.com slash skeptocrat that's L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M.com slash skeptocrat. Subject to credit approval. Rate includes 0.50% auto pay discount. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit Lightstream.com for more information.
1: Okay. I'm going to go get a loan from Lightstream.
4: Okay. You do that. Denotron will feed on others. There are always
2: others.
1: And we're back with Andrew Torres. When we last left off, we were talking about the whipsawing definition of religious freedom. So let's keep that theme going and talk about a decision that really raised my hackles. What can you tell me about the court's decision regarding the California crisis pregnancy centers?
3: Oh, yeah, uh, the, the, the hits just keep on coming here. This case was NIFLA versus Becerra, um, and it involved a law that California passed called the FACT Act, and it was designed to regulate crisis pregnancy centers. And again, right, right I mean, listeners to this show uh, don't need us to explain that crisis pregnancy centers are religious ministries that proselytize to scared young women and try and mimic abortion clinics hmm. in order to terrify 16-year-old girls out of not having them. They're some of the, you know, most truly evil institutions in our society, right? Along with payday lenders. So, what California did was they passed a law that said if you're fit x criteria, which is basically if you're at one of these crisis pregnancy centers, you have to read this statement uh, to any of your potential victims that come in. quote California has public programs that provide immediate free or low cost access to comprehensive family planning services, including all FDA approved methods of contraception, prenatal care and abortion for eligible women. To determine whether you qualify, contact the county social services office at and then the telephone number. Okay. and let's be clear. It has been the law of the land for. 30-plus years that a state can require disclosures like this the other way. Right. right? Yeah. So go back to Planned Parenthood versus Casey, right? That law was a Pennsylvania law that, among other things, required the doctor to tell the woman about the nature of the abortion procedure, the health risks of abortion and of childbirth, the probable gestational age of the, quote, unborn child. And here I'm quoting from the law. That's not Hmm. my rhetoric. And to provide printed materials describing the fetus, describing medical assistance for childbirth, potential child support, and, quote, the agencies that would provide adoption services or other alternatives to abortion. Right. So, look, that's pretty clear what Pennsylvania is trying to do there. They are requiring that abortion providers give information to their patients about alternatives to abortion. And the Casey court was very clear in saying that states may prefer birth to abortion, right? That they have a compelling state interest, they can articulate a compelling state interest in the future life of of children. Okay, so a forciority then, the only neutral position is that states may also prefer abortion to crisis pregnancy centers. Right. And require disclosure. Well, you'd think so, Uh, but the majority said nope, this is compelled speech and I, I, I just don't get it i i i cannot em- envision how uh this decision squares with the host of decisions to the contrary that uh, that that you know that i've just gone through
1: right but uh, but obviously we can see where the where the litmus test would be here because of course abortion clinics don't have a sincerely held religious belief <laughs> against adoption so we just invoke that phrase and all of a sudden we have all new laws for the religious but that's great this is working out really well OK, well, just in case people were thinking that uh, this might all get better through the democratic process, maybe we should talk about the court's decision regarding partisan gerrymandering.
3: Yeah. Uh, so this is another twofer. Uh, I mean, actually, it's a it's a threefer. Right. So first, uh, the court had before it two cases. Uh, Gill versus Whitford that was coming out of Wisconsin that was challenging Republican gerrymandering of the congressional districts in Wisconsin and Benisek versus Lamone, which uh, came out of Maryland. And that was uh, Republicans challenging the Democratic gerrymandering of congressional districts in Maryland. And I just want to to give a parenthetical here this is right there's a there's a ton of false equivalency that's that's out there the oh well you know republicans do that but democrats do it too this really is a case where where both parties when they have access to the levers of power have gerrymandered in equally bad ways right like both both parties are equally bad on this and so i am You know, rooting for the uh, Supreme Court to strike down democratically gerrymandered districts as as in, you know, as with Republican districts. Right. It, it, It as it happens, the effect is worse on the Republican side because Republicans controlled a majority, a supermajority of governorships and state legislatures in 2010 during the last redistricting process. And they developed a software, uh, a piece of software called Red Map, because by 2010, you you know, you could do this with uh, mathematical precision that will enable you to create. You just you literally type in the demographics of the district into the Red Map software, and it draws the lines in such a way as to give you the most politically safe districts you can right and in particular what this enables you to do is uh, let's let's take the state of maryland for example Uh, maryland has eight congressional districts it has seven democratic seats and one republican (laughs) north carolina right is just about 50 50 and uh and yet it has an overwhelming supermajority of conservative uh, districts. Wisconsin is a blue state, but routinely elects Republican members of Congress because of, of how it's gerrymandered. Okay, so that's hmm. the background. And, and the, the, the court has previously left open the question of whether partisan gerrymandering is a claim at all, right? There are three votes on the court right now that I know of, right. Alito, Thomas, and, uh, and I almost said Scalia, but I meant Gorsuch, uh, easy. <laughs> that's, a, that's an easy, uh, uh, slip of the tongue. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, the, the only difference is that one is like 38 and healthy as all hell. Yeah.
3: Yeah. No, I would not, I would not race. Uh, I mean, Neil Gorsuch like runs <laughs> triathlons, right? Oh yeah, no. Jesus. Yeah. No, it's, he's going to be on the court forever. Uh, and, and so will so will the next pick. Uh, so there are three, hard votes on the Supreme Court right now for the proposition that partisan gerrymandering, no matter how extreme, isn't a justiciable claim. It doesn't violate any of your constitutional rights, that it's perfectly fine for states to dilute your vote to the point where it literally does not matter. Now, up until recently, Anthony Kennedy was of the view that partisan gerrymandering was a potentially justiciable claim. That is, Yes, they're in principle, the idea that the state could dilute your vote down to nothing would allow you to to bring a cause of action and potentially strike down partisan gerrymandered districts. But. Uh, that there wasn't a good methodology for figuring out whether a district was gerrymandered in an an unfair way or not. And as it turns out, there is now a really, really – again, because data collection, right? So the method that's being advanced in both of these cases is a surplus vote. Method, right. And it's a super easy calculation to do. All you have to do is just plug in the numbers and then you can compare the indices to see if all of a sudden there are tons of wasted votes. Right. Which is when you have a 90 10 Democratic district. Right. The idea is to waste tens of thousands of Democratic votes in that district where they could be making other districts more competitive. Right. So. Everybody was super excited about these two cases because they seemed to resolve Anthony Kennedy's problem and were going to give us an opportunity to rule on the merits. And instead, the Supreme Court sent them back down to the states for lack of standing. Right. That's a uh, that's a technical doctrine, but basically it was a way of the court saying, "Yeah, we're not going to deal with this question right now. And, and it had to do with how the cases were argued, right? And, and so instead of saying uh, either this is a good method for determining whether there's gerrymandering or this isn't a good method, they said, yeah, we're, we're not deciding that question yet. Uh, come back to us if and when you can argue that your vote itself was diluted.
1: I I just, I'm blown away by this idea that
3: anyone could not have standing in this situation. (laughs) Yeah, it, it, when I first covered the case before Anthony Kennedy's uh, announcement that he was going to retire, I, I... Tried to give it the best possible spin, right? Like I was a little bit encouraged. I said, look, the way in which they articulate what you need to do to allege standing here is not hard. And these plaintiffs in both cases are going to be able to do that on remand. And the case is going to come back up. And finally, it's going to come back up in a posture that's going to allow Justice Kennedy to resolve it on the merits. Well that's not going to happen now. It's going to yeah. come back up in a way that's going to allow a, a, a much further right-wing court to resolve it on the merits and, and probably to rule that partisan gerrymandering does not violate any of your constitutional rights. It's bad. So keep that, <laughs> put a pin in, the Supreme Court took a very, very narrow interpretation of standing in the partisan gerrymandering cases and then consider that 2 days later they decided a case called Abbott versus Perez and that's Greg Abbott so this is Texas this involved blatantly racist gerrymandered districts on the on the basis of race in congressional districts in Texas so unlike partisan gerrymandering we know racial gerrymandering is illegal it violates uh, among other things section 2 of the Voting Rights Act and that case involved again a special Three judge panel under the Voting Rights Act that struck down a number of congressional districts in Texas uh, said these were obviously motivated by racial bias and animus and you gotta redraw these. But there wasn't an injunction, right? It, it was just a court ruling that said, look, we don't care, right? Either remedy this at the executive level or remedy this through the courts, but in in some way you gotta redraw this district because it's impermissibly racially gerrymandered under the Voting Rights Act. And the statute here allows you only to appeal to the Supreme Court. You get to appeal directly from a district court all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court while skipping the Circuit Court of Appeal, but only in cases of an injunction. And this court didn't issue an injunction. And yet the 5-4 majority took the case. And ruled on partisan lines that this is well saying that this is a bad district is kind of like an injunction. So we're going to take the case anyway, and we're going to reverse the lower court's ruling, and we're going to reinstate these blatantly racist gerrymandered districts, and we're going to create a standard of deference that requires you to prove. Or, the grounds in in this decision were uh, that the evidence showed that the 2011 districts adopted by uh, the Texas state legislature were racially biased, but the 2013 districts, which adopted the 2011 districts with virtually no modifications, <laughs> there was an independent evidence that the 2013 legislature was racist. So we have to presume good faith on the part of a Deep South, Southern state legislature—the kind, right? This was what the Voting Rights Act was meant to address, right? That right. there is a history that these states have tried to create racially biased districts, and to replace the standard that said you have to get pre-clear, like we presume when you redistrict and it involves minorities that there's something fishy going on, because there's 200 years of history showing that there's something fishy going on here. They replaced that with a standard that said even if it's almost an identical district and even if the legislature is virtually identical from 2011 to 2013, if you don't have specific evidence of specific racist animus on behalf of the 2013 legislature, then we, we we need to presume that that district is fine. And, uh, and, and I, I cannot, again, this is just one of these where I, I don't know. I, I I defy anybody out there to tell me how you can square the, the court's holdings in gill and benisek in which they applied a hyper-technical application of standing to their ruling in abbott in which they're like yeah well you know it's probably not an it kind of looks like one so why don't you come on in other than reaching the results that they wanted to reach
1: wow yeah all right well so much for the good old days uh <laughs> <laughs> let's move i mean because obviously the elephant in the room here is is kennedy announcing his retirement um, so, uh, first question is fairly obvious. How weird is it to hear about a Kennedy making it to retirement? Right.
3: <laughs> I, as a lifelong reader of alternate history, right? <laughs> oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. It, it's it's. I I I have to tell you, like everything that has happened. I, I the this entire administration feels like a bad alternate history written by an incompetent twelve year old. But uh, yeah. So, yeah, for that. in this style
1: of Carl Hyacin or something. Yeah. So, okay. So it wouldn't be Trump if there weren't like a number. I, I'm surprised he doesn't have Don Pardo calling down all the lucky potential SCOTUS nominees here, but let's cut through all the riffraff. You're pretty confident you already know who he's going to announce as the, and, and, and who's going to ultimately be the next Supreme Court justice, right?
3: Yeah, I am. I think that it is going to be Brett Kavanaugh, who is a judge on the Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. Uh, I just put out an episode of Opening Arguments last Friday that goes through this in really uh, extensive detail. The reason I think it's going to be Kavanaugh, right? There are there are a lot of names that are floating out there. We have seen some public statements from Susan Collins, who has said. I'm not going to vote for anybody who is definitely going to overturn Roe v. Wade, Uh, to which, you know, the the journal and journalists are not always great at asking follow up questions. Um, Give them credit this time, because the uh, journalists asked the follow up question. uh, Didn't you vote for Neil Gorsuch? Yeah, right. (laughs) <laughs> and and what she said was, well, you know, yeah, I know I'm not convinced that uh, that Gorsuch is, is going to overturn Roe v. Wade. Oh, the, the only way in which you could arrive at that decision is if that standard means, hey, don't give me somebody who has uh, an intemperate partisan career of yelling about how abortion is baby murder. Right. Give me somebody that I can pretend, you know, when they when they say at their confirmation hearings, like, You're, you you know, Senator, I am not going to comment on a case that is pending before mm. the Supreme Court. Right. G- give me somebody that I that I have a fig leaf of being able to pretend like they're open minded about. And Kavanaugh will give you that fig leaf. When you go through his opinions and I go through seven or eight of his dissents on the on the most recent episode of OA, what you will be struck by is. Two things number one uh, that he is a hardline conservative he is a champion of the Federalist society he is in the mold of Neil Gorsuch, but you will not find intemperate Scalia style writings you will not find screeds about the evils of abortion, uh, which you will find with some of the other folks who are on Trump's shortlist he's smart he's a he's spent ten years on the circuit uh, Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, uh, which is a feeder court to the Supreme Court. Merrick Garland is the chief judge of that court. Mm. He's eminently qualified in an intellectual sense to sit on the Supreme Court, and his opinions are going to make it very, very difficult for— anybody to 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 pick off any of the Republicans in the Senate, Collins and Murkowski, which you need both in order to in order to block. And you have to hold on to Senate Democrats who are up for re-election in deep red states, right? Like Heidi Heitkamp in yeah. North Dakota and Joe Manchin in West Virginia, both of whom voted for Gorsuch, right? So this, in my view, is the person who has the easiest path to confirmation. And once some potential opposition came down And again, let's, you know, it, it, liberals have been clinging to Colin's statement, you know, like it's the door at the end of Titanic, right? Like it, mm-hmm. it, it is, it, it means very, very little. And I think that the, the Trump administration has leaked some names, right? Like the, the, the hot name right now for triggering the libs is Amy Coney Barrett, uh, who, you know, she's been a federal, she, she literally has been a, a federal judge for like six months, right? It, she will not be the nominee, and she mm. is there so that uh, when it is Kavanaugh, and 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 there's another person, it, it could be uh, Raymond Cethledge of the Sixth Circuit. But I think Kavanaugh is, is probably a stronger candidate just because of his temperament. But it could be Cethledge as well. Either way, these are hardcore, hard right Federalist Society candidates, and. The media will be deked into saying, "Hey, look! Like he could have picked Barrett. He could have picked Roy Moore. He could, you know, like." (laughs) And and don't fall for that, right? Like these are ninety nines that that Donald Trump is planning to put on the Supreme Court.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I looked at the the Kavanaugh's bio, and it just reads like a. A who's who of Republican partisanship, like every major partisan thing that happened in the last 25 years, he's somehow tangentially involved with.
3: Yeah. Uh, at his at his confirmation hearing, he was referred to as the Zelig or Forrest Gump of Republican. <laughs>
1: right. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Um so um, is is he a 72-year-old chain smoker by any No,
3: sense? he's 53 and oh, when you God look at his it. photo he looks about 35. Um mm-hmm. I like neither you nor I should challenge this dude to an arm wrestling contest is what I'm
1: saying. Uh Okay, so I have a serious question for you because I was trying to find the answer to this before before the interview. When was the last time a Supreme Court justice was replaced by someone to
3: their left? And The answer is, and I'm 100% serious about this, the answer is the 20th century, right? So Obama had two appointees, right? Sotomayor filled suitor's seat, right? So that didn't move the court. At all to the left and Kagan replaced John Paul Stevens again liberal replaced with liberal. It's why it was crucial for Mitch McConnell to steal the Garland seat Mm. uh, because replacing because that's essentially the equivalent of of what Trump is about to do. He's about to replace a mainstream conservative with an activist conservative and what Obama was going to do was replace an activist conservative in Scalia with a center left candidate in in Merrick Garland. And, And again, Go back to our number line. Merrick Garland is a 40, a 45. Right. I mean, when 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 Garland was the nominee, the the announced nominee, most liberal groups were really unhappy with Obama uh, for that for that nomination. Right. He is by no means a, a, a lefty. So, yeah. No, to find out who that is, you have to go all the way back to Bill Clinton's first term in which he replaced uh, Byron Whizzer White with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, wow. So yeah, we have, and that moved the court, you know, a a a tick to the left. Wow. So we've been basically moving right since, since long before either of us were born, right? Yeah. No, uh, but before that, you have to go back to Richard Nixon. Well, in fairness, David Souter. Uh, was... Well, yeah, they
1: accidentally got one that was removed <laughs> in a little right. to the left. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And again, they, they act that is if you go to a Federalist society meeting and you whisper the name David Souter, right? Like that is, <laughs> you know, he who must not be named in in Federalist society,. So, and I, I'm a hundred percent serious about that, right? Like They talk about how, you know, yeah, boy, we we sure made a mistake of, you know, trying to pick somebody who seemed to have a conservative temperament but was an honest intellectual scholar in putting them on the Supreme Court. and let's not ever do that again. And you will not see that. And so as a result, following in the mold of of Antonin Scalia in, in the mold that was crafted by Robert Bork in the 1970s and 1980s that kept him off the court in 1986, mm. I should add, then what you have is a, a judicial philosophy that encourages concentrating power in the judiciary and empowering it to be activist in the pursuit of right-wing political ends. And and that, you know, kind of goes full circle all the way back to the Janus decision that, that we started this show with. That's why I am most up in arms about the Janus decision, because it is the clear sign that this next court is just going to trample willy nilly over precedent. It is going to rule for right wing outcomes with reckless abandon. And the only hope we have is the institutionalist leanings of John Roberts, of being able to correct when they go too far. But, like, let's point out things that don't go too far, right? Like Hobby Lobby didn't go too far. Creating a brand new religious right of companies to hold religious beliefs didn't go too far. Roberts dissented and dissented bitterly and vigorously in Obergefell, right? And, and I mean, with language like, how dare we redefine the notion of marriage that has persisted from, you know, and he lists like the Persians and, you know, the Kalahari Bushmen and, you know, like it, it, is, uh, it is a stunning and bigoted and terrifying dissent. And I think it is going to be very, very difficult for John Robert's despite his institutionalist leanings to, to vote to uphold Obergefell in, in, uh, when that case comes, comes up for reconsideration. It's going to be bad. And th- there is nothing we can do about this. Uh, and at, at, you know, other, at, at, I mean, I can't, you know, again, I'm not saying don't make the fight. I'm not saying don't put uh, and don't hold Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski's feet to the fire, but I'm saying at the end of the day, you know, hoping for a, a magical solution is, um, you know, it, that's not going to come.
1: All right. So at the risk of uh, of of stealing yet one other illusory safety blanket from the listeners, uh, the popular talk that the uh, next Democratic president will just pack the court, add two more Supreme Courts, That's just as silly as 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 the rest of these uh, potential solutions. Correct.
3: So I, I I wouldn't call it silly, right? The the Constitution does not specify that uh it, it just says that the the judiciary shall be vested in one Supreme Court. It does not specify that it must be nine. And additional courts have been created, right? The Judiciary Act of seventeen eighty nine began the creation of the inferior courts to the Supreme Court. It has been amended over time to create the current structure that we have today. So a democratic president and a democratic senate and democratic congress could in fact pack the courts but keep in mind that once you've crossed that line right in order to do that right yeah i mean let's let let, let me unravel a little bit of what what you would have to do to do that right you'd have to win back the senate then the democratic president and the senate which is not going to be 60 democrats right like that that you're you're not going to win a super majority in the senate no matter what happens so you're going to have to get rid of the filibuster and then you're going to have to cram through on narrow partisan grounds uh, a court packing bill and the caution that i would urge is the democrats Started the path that led to Neil Gorsuch on the Supreme Court. Right, the Democrats invoked the nuclear option to get Barack Obama's lower federal judges appointed because, again, because Mitch McConnell was being obstructionist. Uh, I, I'm not. I'm not even saying that I disagree with doing so. I'm saying that once you open up that can of worms, then. That's something that can be used by the other side as well. And so, you know, yeah, you can say President Elizabeth Warren in 2020 with a in 2021 uh, with a Democratic Senate will blow up the filibuster and increase the size of the Supreme Court from nine to 15. Uh, But, you know, is that going to pave the way for, you know, President Donald Trump Jr. in 2024 to expand the court to one hundred and five? Right. Yeah, Exactly. And and again, I I get it that, you know, we are fighting against a a side that doesn't play by the rules. But I I I I worry when we decide that we've got to we've got to play along because they're better at it than we are.
1: (laughs) Well, and then, yeah, right. And there you ultimately reach a point where if no one's playing by the rules, then it really doesn't matter what anyone does. Nobody wins. Um, okay, so no silver lining this week. We're going to have to have you on sometime to talk about like some puppy being reunited with its family or something, yeah. Andrew. Uh, <laughs> but I really appreciate you giving me so much of your time today.
3: Oh, uh, no, thanks for having me on. I, I love the show. I, I love all the shows, obviously, but uh, it's this is, this is my first time getting to be on Skeptocrat, and I'm just sad I didn't get to make any dick jokes. Yeah. <laughs>
1: We'll have to have you on again sometime. All right. So thanks. Pr- promise next time you hear Andrew, uh, there will be dick jokes. And that's going to do it for episode 75. Once again, a huge thanks to Andrew Torres. And remember, if you want to hear more about the stuff we discussed today, you can find a much deeper dive by checking out Andrew's podcast, Opening Arguments, which you'll find linked on the show notes for this episode. And while I'm thanking folks, thanks to all the listeners who liked us on Facebook,
0: followed us on Twitter, and sent us feedback on the other various internets. Please keep doing that. Please keep listening, and please keep telling your friends. And if you find the naive stupidity of our giving away a free show business model to be oddly charming, please feel free to send us gifts of money at our donation page at patreon.com skeptocrat. Just like all the people whose genitals heath'll compliment on the next episode. And whether or not you're feeling financially benevolent like those fine people, if you enjoyed our brand of whimsy and you'd like to hear more dick jokes free of charge, check out our brother and sister shows, The Scathing Atheist and God-awful Movies, available on iTunes, Stitcher, or the Deep Web. Also check out Citation Needed, of course. We just have one last thing. Let's compliment that penis. Special thanks to Ryan Slotnick of Evil Giraffes on Mars. He is the creator of the virtuosic musical stylings you heard today, which were used with his permission. You should definitely check him out using the links we'll provide or by Googling the only band called Evil Giraffes on Mars. Until next time, catchphrase sign-off.
1: The preceding podcast was a production of Puzzle and a Thunderstorm LLC, copyright 2018, all rights reserved.